In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. In our day, movie theater entrances are merely functional. We walk in, we deposit, or nowadays you can scan a ticket. You get the necessary refreshments, in my case, always, you know, something of the lines of uh, icy and uh, Mike and Ike's and popcorn, and then you head off to your necessary destination. Sometimes you stop at the facilities on your way. But during the Great Depression, movie theater entrances were very ornate. They were intended to transport one from um, the, the challenges of life to see something truly majestic. Take, for instance, you might have to look it up. It's a little washed out this morning. Um, the Los Angeles Theater. It looked like something palatial. Architects built high vaulted ceilings. They had rich tapestries that hung from the walls. Museum quality art. And of course, ushers dressed to the nines to greet one upon coming to the door. The idea was that in the midst of life, one would step in and anticipate something fun, anticipate where they were headed next. And so they would be transported for 90 minutes or so into another worldly experience, especially at a time and in a season where um, so much would weigh them down. In those days, the Great Depression, movie tickets were 27 cents, which seems like nothing these days, but it was still quite a bit during that time. And so when one could save up enough money, they, they expected this wonderful experience that might give them a bit of a reprieve from the drudgery of the things of this life. Before us this morning stands another door, another door that opens into an equally majestic scene. But thanks be to God, that scene is not one that is fleeting, that just gives us a momentary 90-minute uh, reprieve um, or a chance to just be transported for a moment, but it actually allows us to see heaven as it is. That, that image is before us in Revelation chapter 4 this morning, and it's fitting for us to dwell on that for just a moment, because this day, Trinity Sunday, in many ways kind of capstones um, the church year. Um, after walking through the life of Christ through most of the year, um, we gather it all up in the mystery and the majesty of the Trinity itself. And so it's wonderful for our hearts and minds to there ascend to this image of the throne room to stay oriented upon the reality of how things are, even in the midst of what we behold with our eyes. So if you would, um, let's turn back to Revelation 4 in your Bible, or you can follow along on the screens um, as we explore this idea, this theme, if you will, of the um, transcendence of the Trinity. As we go through, we'll, we'll try to unpack um, some of these um, images as we go, and then we'll, we'll kind of glean a little bit of a zoomed-out lesson for us, two of which as we go through this together. Um, the first two verses are, are a gathering up as, as Jesus speaks to John in this vision, right? Um, to let him see heaven itself. And as he does, John beholds the throne room of God, and unlike in, in Ezekiel, even somewhat of Isaiah today, and certainly more in Daniel, um, John doesn't even try to sketch or even put words to God on his throne. All he can articulate is the majesty that he sees. So in um, verse 3 there, um, God is, is basically just characterized by resplendent 
um, uh, images of jasper and carnelian, resplendent glory and color. He won't even put his mind to try to describe what he beholds, unlike some of the other um, prophetic works and apocalyptic literature in Scripture. And while some have tried to ascribe great detail to what the significance of those colors may be, we'd, we'd miss the point if we spent too much time there. Because all they're trying to do is gather up in John's vision this, this miraculous image of God that he can only characterize in these colors, because nothing else will really quite do. And there, um, around the throne, is this emerald rainbow, which, when we think about rainbows in Scripture, should bring us back to Exodus and the flood and Noah um, and Exodus 9, uh, or Genesis 9, excuse me, um, where we remember God's promise. And around the throne stands this everlasting promise that God will never again destroy his creation. In fact, what vision unfolds in the subsequent chapters of Revelation tells us how God will redeem everything he's created and everyone in it. It's not a wiping out, it's not a redo or a reset, but a restoration project. And so we see that therein stands the sign of that around the throne. And as we advance um, to verse 4, and look, we see there's these 24 elders, representative really of a perfected humanity. Um, the 12 tribes of Israel meeting the 12 apostles and this marrying of the Jews and the Gentiles, the light of the nations um, that Jesus was and is and is to come, gathered up in this image thereof, emblematic of all of humanity. They are white and dressed in white, uh, pure and spotless before the throne room of grace. There in verse 5, we discover these flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Again, that should take you this time back to Exodus um, in Sinai, um, where we see when God um, issues forth or shows up, if you will, um, it is quite terrifying. Remember the people of Israel watching on top of Sinai what's happening, and all they see are peals of lightning and um, flashes, or peals of thunder and flashes of lightning, rather, in that moment. And before the throne stands this rather ominous image of a sea of glass. And that image of sea of glass is, is a wonderful image to dwell on for just a moment, because if you think about the, the sea in Scripture, the sea is often formless. It's symbolic of chaos, quite, quite literally, more often than not. Um, and it has often been tagged with uh, a, an image of evil. Um, Jonah, you see the sea, right, is kind of this image that, that's captured up. We see passing through the sea. Um, when, when God brings his people through the sea, it shows his control over the sea. Jesus calms the sea, right? Um, the reason it's before the throne room of grace is it's still. It's a sea of glass. While evil has not yet been fully dealt with, it will be. In fact, in Revelation 21, where we were a couple weeks ago, Remember, the sea essentially is swallowed up. Evil is, is put away. But while it still exists until it is finally dealt with, it's subdued under God's throne. God is above it, and it sits like a sea of glass. Nothing is outside of God's control. Nothing is outside of God's purposes. Only he can quell that which is chaotic and formless and seemingly out of control. So we have this wonderful image that kind of sketches out this, this throne room of grace. And I think as we think about these things, hopefully what it does for us, um, and perhaps a first lesson, is it should just inspire wonder, complete awe and wonder at who God is. 
we catch a glimpse here of what we cannot see. It's, it's a grace that God gives us, kind of a peeling back of the veil. What's described here is not the end of the story, the end of the story where Jesus reigns and rules on earth and heaven meets earth as we pray every week in the Lord's Prayer. That's not yet happened. This is a picture of what is right now. And so in the midst of, as we remember in the baptismal prayer, one of my favorites before we head to the font, um, the trials and chances of this life, what we do see, the challenges we do behold, the things we walk through, we're given this image to fix our gaze upon so that it keeps us oriented on the way things really are, even when we can't fully see it. It's a wonderful reminder that, that allows our hearts to be gathered up towards that end. In fact, it's for that reason, um, historically, uh, churches were really quite ornate. Um, ours is wonderful and, and has a good simplicity to it. But if you've ever been in old, old churches, I think one of the older ones are downtown in Fort Worth, they are very ornate. Rich stained glass, ornate sconces, towering figures. In many days, it was intended to do what um, we remember in other forms and settings with movie theaters in a sense, right? When one walked in, it would transport them into the transcendent which was all the more important, say, 100, 200, 300, 1,000 years ago, when the drudgery of life was quite mundane, coming in with mud on their shoes out of the fields, kicking the dust off their boots as they'd walk into church. They would be transported into something otherworldly that would remind them of the reality of the way things are, even when they couldn't see it. And so today, I think for us, as we're reminded of the wonder of God in this moment, um, we have so many things that are flashy and distracting in our world. So perhaps for us, the question is, how might we take that wonder out? In the 19th century, certainly in England and other places, they quite literally took it out. These, you know, fine robes or capes, as my girls like to call them, um, and all the wonder of uh, the church would be taken out into the slums in England, into the worst parts of creation, seemingly, that they could gather. And they would allow them to see the beauty, the beauty of what they cannot behold. And in the midst of their lives and the trials and the sorrows of life, they would be reminded of the glory of God and allow their hearts to their ascend. And then, of course, the church would bring with her um, the things that they needed temporally towards that end. While that's needful, perhaps what's even more needful these days is for people to behold the wonder of God in us. Um, they need to see that authenticity, that um, integrity that believers have. Perhaps we are that resplendent beauty of the church out in the world and in the midst of so many things that are flashing and fleeting, perhaps. But this reminder that stands before us is one that should capture our attention. We need to be reminded of the wonder and the glory and the goodness of God because so often we get distracted. Now, what should this wonder lead us toward? Let's look at the second half of our reading just briefly to discover that. In the latter half of verse 6, as we pick back up, we catch um, the rest of this image of those in attendance, and there's a clear theme that begins to emerge therein. Around the throne, the throne are these um, four living creatures. Um, historically, the church has seen those emblematic of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, each creature attached to each image, right? Um, and then also, 
from that place, there's also uh, this image that in those creatures is a reminder of the whole of creation itself. Um, John doesn't describe it in the depth and detail that Daniel and in other places we do, but you see winged birds and creeping things. Um, the whole of creation is offering what? Praise unto God. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You sing those words every week before we come to the throne of grace, receiving from the Lord's board, as it was called, um, at communion each and every week. And then we affirm Christ has died, is risen, and will come again. That same recognition of this eternal presence of God. And so in that moment, we catch a bit of a glimpse of what's going on there as all creation, even in its present state, worships God. And attending to that, of course, and in reply, are those 24 elders. Those 24 elders with those lampstands. Um, those lampstands that are gathered are reminded us of the sevenfold gifts of the Spirit, right? That were given at baptism. Um, that remind us of the wisdom and knowledge that allows us to proclaim these words, those sevenfold gifts of the Spirit, which I always have to look at because I, I get about five in and then I forget, are these for those inquiring minds, wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and might, knowledge and godliness, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord or a respect of who God is. And that's wrapped up in this reply of these 24 elders who cast down their thrones each and every time, proclaiming God as worthy. Worthy are you, Lord God, to receive glory and power and might. This is where they are distinguished from the creatures. Um, for, or because, you're, you created all things, and by your will they were existed and created. So basically what is happening there is, while creation offers its praise, only humanity, the pinnacle of creation, understands why we worship. We worship the creator who created us and all things. Therefore, he is the reason for which we worship, and it's for that reason we worship the creator and not the created, um, because he is worthy of our praise, and he sustains us in our life. So I think a clear theme emerges here that from a place of awe and wonder, it should lead us to a place of worship. That is what is happening at all times, in all moments, in heaven, until all things are set right. One great New Testament scholar captured this quite simply and quite well, noting that worship, after all, is the most central human activity. Worship, after all, is the most central human activity. And we do well to recall that worship is what we offer to God, not what we receive from God. So um, it's offering the best of ourselves, our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, making joyful noises, in my case, sometimes not as on pitch, but making joyful noises nonetheless, right, unto God, bringing the best of ourselves to him. It's what we offer to him, and sure, we receive, because he's so wonderful and gracious, something in return. But it's not what we get, it's what we give in worship. And that's important, because what worship is intended to do is keep us rightly aligned. That in the midst of a life that tries to tell us who are created, that we can be the creator, or we toil in our own strength to do those things, in our own energy and our own might, that here stands this reminder every time we offer worship to recognize the rightly aligned way of life under the throne room of grace so that we remember whose we are 
and where we are headed. So we dwell on that. I hope this is a rather obvious point, but I guess the question would be this. How often are we regularly in worship? And by that, I mean not just for an hour to an hour and a half on Sundays, but how much is that part of our regular daily rhythm? If it becomes part of that, it reshapes the way in which we lead life. There are wonderful forms, as you know, in morning and evening prayer. There are formal rites, but there's also ways where we can worship God just in the midst of our day. Um, with our girls, we practice this uh, as I've shared, often on the way to school, and I ask them, what are you thankful to God for today? And usually, as of late, in the early hours of the morning, I get responses like everything. And I go, okay, that's good. Now give me an example of everything. Um, and, you know, then it's mom, dad, whatever. It, but once they get going, I'm, like, pushing them out the door at school, like, okay, we got it. You know, I mean, once you get rolling, it's easy to get into that place of worship, and that's wonderful because we need to be in that posture. We need it in the midst of life, because in the midst of all the things that we face, all the challenges that we are beset with, all uh, the flaws we know of ourselves, we allow ourselves to focus on the throne room of grace, as things are now, until we see the way things will be. And so today in Trinity Sunday, in a gathering up of this image, we're reminded of the throne room of grace, and we should take times in the midst of our week to just sit and wonder of who God is. Find quiet pockets, two, three minutes, just to allow your heart to there ascend. And when you do, to be in a place of worship. Because as we think of that, when we think of all the chaos in life, be drawn to the stilled sea before the throne room of grace. God's got this. The same Lord and God we worship on his throne in heaven is the same one who orders the calming of the waves and offers Peter to step out of the boat to come to him. Um, that in the midst of all the challenges we face in life, that he is there and he is in control. And when we let our hearts there ascend and we allow our lives to speak up to the throne room of grace, it puts us at peace so that as we move throughout this life, we stay there fixed, stay there oriented until that day where we see things as they really are, not as we see them paling in comparison to that with our eyes. But what are beheld by eyes of faith now will be beheld in our resplendent bodies one day as we behold heaven in all of its glory and as we pray every week that God's will on earth may be done as it is in heaven until that day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.